0: Well, good morning again, Hallows Church. Let me invite you to take out your Bibles to that same section that was read just a moment ago, Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 13. My name is Keith. I'm one of the pastors here in West Seattle, and it is my joy to worship with you guys this morning. And uh, I'm just gonna warn you on the front, and this is gonna be a bit of a delightful sermon for us, and I mean that a a bit sarcastically, because this sermon is entirely about authority, one of our favorite subjects, the matter of authority, that we are a people under authority. The reason why, and we're going to see it developed as we go on, but it begins back in chapter 11. And that's when Jesus, uh, after he heals this blind man, he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. And as we discussed in that section, this is a momentous occasion for the history of Israel because this is when Israel's king has come the king that essentially the universe has been waiting for he has come back and with a king comes authority and and one of the first things that Jesus does is he goes into the temple and he starts kicking people out turning over tables and upsetting not just tables but people all over the place and one of the first things that they ask him in response to him acting like this is Jesus who gives you the authority to do this What on earth makes you think that you have the right to come in here and to do the things you're doing and to say the things that you are saying? Whose authority do you bring with you? And then, of course, Jesus would respond asking a question about that authority, but then telling a parable leading on into chapter 12, a parable that indicates where that authority comes from. Drawing from an illustration used often in the Old Testament about a vine, Jesus would say, among many other things, that his authority comes as the Son of God. But that in some way, this Son of God would be rejected. And so as we continue in our text this morning, in just a moment, we're going to see various ways that the authority of the Son of God, the authority of the Christ, is rejected. Common ways that this happened, not only in the first century, but in our day today, it's not a comprehensive list, but it's going to be a helpful, I guess, preview into the ways that our hearts tend to rebel against the authority that God has placed into this world. So in just a moment, we will do that. But first, I would like to pray for us again. God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you love us in ways even that we don't recognize you bring things into our lives even when we don't realize we need them God we thank you that you have authority over all things and that in this moment we can trust you that you are a God and you are a father who loves us and we believe that whatever you have to say is something that is worth listening to and is something worth considering because you are worthy God and Lord, I am, I am just a man, but I believe, God, that you allow people to be your messengers. And so I pray in this moment, you would allow me to be a messenger to your people so that by the time we are done examining your word together, we can see you high and lifted up, but we may also be joyful in the greatness of your salvation. We love you, Jesus, and we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. So the way this is going to be unpacked for us is going to be through a few different groups or individuals coming up to Jesus. Now, if you back up very briefly to chapter 11, in verse 27, we see that chief priests, scribes and elders are coming up to Jesus and they're contesting him. They're trying to discredit him. They're trying to bring him down. Ultimately, they want to get rid of him completely. And this same group of people now in verse 13 sends some of the Pharisees and the Herodians in order to trap Jesus. Now, this is really interesting that these two groups are working together because in normal circumstances, they hate each other. I mean, you're talking about aristocratic elites who are highly politically motivated and you're talking about people who are not aristocratic elites who oftentimes struggle with hating the government in which, under which they live. And yet, I guess as the ancient Asian proverb says, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so these two hate Jesus enough that they will become friends in this mutual effort to get rid of him. And we're going to find out as we dive in that one of the ways that we reject the authority of God is through error of our politics. This is going to be a political matter that they're discussing here in a moment. So they're gonna come up and they're gonna try to butter up Jesus just to throw him off. They're gonna say these nice things about him. You're a truthful speaker. You're impartial, all of these things. I think, of course, insincere. And Jesus, of course, uh, indicates that in a moment, but it's a way to kind of throw him off because they're gonna trap him. They're gonna try to trap him. Is it lawful, Jesus, to pay the poll tax or not? Should we do it or shouldn't we? This was a hot-button political issue in those days. You see, the poll tax was instituted in AD 6 whenever Judea became officially under Roman rule. And it's not like a percentage-based tax, but it was a kind of a headcount tax. So once a person reached a certain age, it was a flat rate per person paid to the Roman government. This wasn't an unfamiliar tax for the Jews. This was actually written into their law, not this one specifically towards the Romans. But there was a poll tax written into the law for the Jews. And that, once a Jew reached a certain age, there was a poll tax collected for that person at an appointed time. And all of those proceeds would go towards the sanctuary. So there was a a religious purpose towards that poll tax. So this is, of course, a very different poll tax going towards the Roman Empire who doesn't worship the God of Israel. They worship the Roman pantheon, all kinds of gods and all kinds of practices that the Jews would not agree with. And so a lot of these first century Jews really struggled with this issue of the poll tax. Now, some really didn't. The Herodians, for example, they didn't care. They're like, yeah, we love the Roman government. So hooray, Rome, hooray, poll tax. But then you had on maybe the other end of the spectrum, you had people like zealots. And you see a exa- couple of examples of zealots in the Bible. And these were basically anarchists. They're like, we hate the government. We want to bring down the government. There should be no government over us, especially the Roman Empire. So you have all kinds of people in the midst of this hot button political issue called the poll tax, but it made people feel especially angsty because it was a reminder that they were not their own nation anymore. The Jews, they were a nation, but they no longer had their king over them. They were no longer a nation that collected a poll tax simply for their sanctuary. They now had to pay a poll tax to a ruling authority that they could not stand And so this was a serious political issue. And they're trying to trap Jesus by appealing to their religious law. Jesus, is it lawful according to our customs? Is it lawful according to our scriptures to pay a poll tax or not? Now get the trap here. If Jesus says yes, if Jesus says yes, it's lawful, Maybe the Romans will be happy with that, but he just made an entire nation of Jews furious. Including all of those people who just followed him into Jerusalem, rejoicing, Hosanna, it's the king, the son of David, he's back. And now all of a sudden, wait, he's saying that it's okay to pay the poll tax to Caesar. We don't get it. But then if he goes the other way and says, no, he has problems. Because maybe the Jews are happy that he said, no, you shouldn't pay the poll tax. It's not lawful. But what, what that would mean is now the Roman government, the Roman authorities see him as an enemy. And in fact, this would be something that would be levied against Jesus in his trials that he is an enemy of Caesar. And so, and humanly speaking, this is actually a really good trap. And if it were me, I would be stuck. But thankfully, it wasn't me. It was Jesus. And so Jesus is not stuck. He says, bring me a denarius. Actually, he says, why are you testing me? He sees right through the hypocrisy. Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius. The denarius was the coin they would use for this poll tax. And on it, it would have a picture of the Caesar And there'd be many things inscribed on this coin, pressed into this coin, but one of the phrases that would be on that coin is son of the divine or son of God. Now that would be pretty blasphemous for Jews, right? So Jesus has them bring him this coin. He holds it up. Whose likeness and inscription is on this coin? Caesar. Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God's. And then drops the mic. So so he says render to Caesar the things that are Caesar. If he would have stopped there that would have been pretty problematic. Because he just said that part of your submission to the authority of God is being submission to human governments. He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar. It makes tons of sense to Jesus. Look, Caesar in his power and his resources got the materials to make this coin. And he had them melted down and he had them pressed and inscribed. His picture is on this coin. Does it not belong to him? Give it back to him if he asks for it. There is no contradiction in Jesus' mind why he is there on the earth to bring about his kingdom and simultaneously to say, that coin, give it to Caesar. And this is challenging for us because we don't like authority. Sometimes I think we like the concept of God's authority because it, it feels, it can feel distant it can feel far away it can feel immaterial because you know in a sense god is not physically standing right in front of us and giving us a directive and so it, it feels like there's maybe a little bit of separation that's not what happens in actuality god is present and his authority reigns over all but that's what it can feel like to us but with human authority we don't like it because it's standing right in front of us And it's telling us that we can't do things the way that we want to. And it's telling us that even sometimes the way that we do things is wrong and we hate it. This is what we do. And yet all of a sudden Jesus is giving approval to it. Now, just so that we're not being inconsistent, I wanna have you turn to Romans 13 real quick. And we've also listed several other scriptures for you to reference in your own time. The words will also be up on the screen it says every person every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities for there is no th- authority except from god and those which go- and sorry those which exist are established by god therefore whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of god and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves And again, there are other scriptures there to indicate this similar attitude of how we are to approach those in authority, including specifically those in government. Do you think that's meaningful for us here after recent events in our country? An election that uh, a fair number of people will say that our future leader, our president-elect, is unfit to serve as a president. Some people may feel the exact way about our current president, President Obama, and that one day, if things continue as they are next year, we will say the words "President Donald Trump." Now how do you feel about that? Does that make you angsty, does make you angry? Does it make you feel rebellious? Does it make you just want to see the whole system change? Does it make you want to move to Canada? I think what's helpful to remember is that when the Gospel of Mark was written and when it was circulated in the first century, it was being circulated among churches and Christians who were being systematically persecuted by the Roman government. Their businesses were being taken away. Their houses were being taken away. Some family members were being taken away or killed. And some of them even lost their own lives simply because they chose to follow Jesus. And by calling him king, they wouldn't, do, they wouldn't call Caesar king in the way that they wanted him to. And when Romans... Was written, And all of those other letters that you have in your outline there, it was in the midst of people who were greatly suffering because of their faith at the hands of the government. And yet what has God the Holy Spirit said through these people? It says, this government is in place because God put it there. And these people are in place because God put it there. And you are to pray for your leaders. And you are not to resist your leaders in a way that would dishonor God. And in fact, you are to love your leaders and honor them. In fact, there's a phrase that says, Honor the king. This same Caesar who would declare edicts to have Christians killed, you were supposed to honor him. And I think this is a challenging statement for us who are dealing with what we're dealing with right now because. In the matter of authority towards God, what is being said here is that if you want to honor the authority of God, you cannot bypass honoring the authority that he has put in place. Just uh, uh, pardon the crudeness of the example. I just don't have a better one at the moment. You know, I'm, I'm really excited. My parents are gonna be coming in next week. Uh, really glad to see them. Not only because they're just wonderful people and I love spending time with them, but also because they are so sweet in giving Julie and me date nights. I love date nights. And uh, one of the things that I do is I sit the kids down and I tell them, I want you to honor your Nana and your papa Papa Bear in the same way that you would honor me and that you would honor Mommy. And so I vest an authority to them because ultimately the decisions about my kids are on us, not on my parents, but whenever they watch our kids, we give them an authority to act on our behalf And whenever we come back, if we find out that they did not show honor and respect towards that authority that I placed over them, they will have to answer to us, which is typically not pleasant for them. There's some kind of recourse for it. Again, it's a very crude example, but it's essentially God saying, in this world, I am in control and I have placed governments and authorities and leaders And so far as it does not dishonor me, you are to be in subject to those governing authorities. And this isn't a pro-U.S. government message. We're not going to start chanting USA, okay? Because of what Jesus says after it. He does say, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But he also says, render to God the things that are God's. Now, did you catch that? You know, Caesar made the coin. Therefore, give it to him. It belongs to him. But if that's true, then what does that say about God? What has he made? Everything. And so in light of the fact that God has said, be subject and honor the governing authorities over you at the same exact time, you need to understand that all authority belongs to God. The coin belongs to God. Everything about the Roman government at the time belongs to God. And get this, Jesus could have said anything about this coin. He could have said, who made it? But what did he say? He said, whose likeness and inscription is this? The coin was made in Caesar's image. Does that phrasing sound familiar? Because that same type of language is used in Genesis chapter one, around verse twenty-six, when God says, Let us make man in our image, and so he did, both male and female, he created them in his image and in his likeness. And what that means is when Jesus says, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and God the things that are and to God the things that are God's, it means God owns everything, including Caesar, the one who is made what in his image. And so in this matter of our rebellion against authority in this world, and here it's specifically about a government, but there's all kinds of authority that happens in this world. Our refusal to honor that authority is ultimately a failure to trust God. It's a failure to believe what he has said is true, that he is the one who is Lord over all of it. But it also adds a degree of accountability to us, that there may become a point when we have to choose between honoring King Jesus and honoring Caesar. And when Jesus adds that addendum, give to God the things that are God's, he says our primary and our highest allegiance is to King Jesus and not to Caesar. And so it was interesting for our family in the middle of this election season because our kids are old enough for the first time to kind of understand a little bit of what's going on. And so we try to institute these practices where we're going to, and we, of course, don't do it perfectly. Anytime you drive with me, you know I don't uh, follow the laws particularly well, um, But we want to, as a family, encourage our children that we honor the law. Like we'll pay our taxes if that is what is due. If there's some kind of law being put in place to the best as we can, and according as far as our conscience will allow us, we will honor those laws. Whenever we speak about our leaders We will say Senator. We will say President Obama. We won't use his last name derogatorily. And whenever Donald Trump becomes president one day, we will refer to him as President Trump as a way to honor that authority. And at the same time, we want to instill within our family this idea that if the government ever says anything that transgresses against our conscience or against what we believe God wants us to do as a Christian, we have the freedom to render to God The things that are God's. Now, you can imagine this is a sermon in and of itself, but we don't have the time, so we're going to move on to the next means of rejection, ways at which we fight against God. Not in error of politics, this time in error of theology. The Pharisees and Herodians are done, they couldn't answer. They're amazed at Jesus. How does he answer like this? Now it's the Sadducees' turn. They're gonna come up to Jesus with another trick question, a tricky situation. Now we let's talk about the Sadducees for a little bit to understand where this is coming from. The Sadducees were a, a type of religious authority in those days. Uh, they did not believe in... Uh, the resurrection. They did not believe in the afterlife. They did not believe in angels. And when it comes to the Bible or it comes to the scriptures, they only believed the law. And let me, so let me explain our old Testament. Um, everything in our old Testament is consistent in content with what the Jews had in the first century. So our scriptures are the same as theirs. Now, the only difference is the ordering. They would break it up into the law and the prophets and the writings. We have the same stuff in our Old Testament. It's just the ordering of certain, or the arrangement of different of books is a little bit different because of those three major categories that they have. The law was Genesis through Deuteronomy. The prophets were things like Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jonah, Hosea. And then the writings were Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, things like that. That's how the Jews broke up their scriptures. Well, the Sadducees, what they did was they said, we only accept the law, which means they only accepted Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy and everything else they threw out. They didn't see it as valuable. They didn't see it as authoritative. And they certainly didn't see it as coming from God. And so they come up to Jesus. And with this in mind, they come up to Jesus with a tricky situation. They're going to bring up something called leveret marriage. There was written into the Old Testament law a situation that I think would be more common in those days than it would be today, of course, but it was necessary for the for the continuation of heritage and namesake for families. So let's just imagine a situation where there's a father who has three sons. Now, this father inherited maybe land, property, all of these things from his father before him. And when this father dies, he's going to pass on his material wealth. He's going to pass on his land, his inheritance, and and to some extent, his namesake, his heritage to his sons. Now, the first son, let's just say he gets married and dies, Well, the problem with that is now uh, if he has no kids, there's nothing to pass down his namesake, his heritage to, there's nothing. And so what God put in place, and this might sound a little strange for us, but in their culture, it's no problem whatsoever in many cultures today. The next oldest son, if he wasn't married, would marry the widow of the brother and then they would raise a family. And the first son of those kids would become the heir of the deceased brother. And then the rest of the children would pull under the second brother and be his heirs. And that was a way to make sure that this brother's, this deceased brother's name didn't get blotted out forever. He would have a continuation and and an inheritance that would keep going. If you want a biblical example of this, a really cool one actually, go read the book of Ruth. That whole book is about how God uses this leveret marriage to do something pretty amazing. It's a wonderful book but the Sadducees have this idea. They come up to Jesus and they say, okay, Jesus, we know that Moses said this, that if a brother dies, the next brother needs to marry the widow and raise up a son in his place. But what happens if that first brother dies and the second one marries him and then he dies and there's no kids. And then the third one marries and dies and there's no kids. And the fourth one and the fifth one, all the way down to seven brothers, all of them marry this woman and they have no kids. And then they kind of takes a turn and it says, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be, Jesus? In the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Which is really peculiar that they would ask it like that. Nevertheless, Jesus answers them and he says, you are greatly mistaken, verse 24. You don't understand the scriptures or the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they, are, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Uh, so Jesus says that the way that marriage is done here on this earth, it will not be done in heaven. So when you look at the Bible, the only marriage that is ever talked about in all of scripture after the kingdom comes is the marriage of Jesus to his church. That's the only one. And so I'm sorry to dash your hopes, uh, maybe your Hallmark card hopes about what we become in the afterlife, but we don't become angels, guys. And when Jesus says that, he's just simply saying angels don't get married and neither will people when they are in the kingdom. But he doesn't stop there. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses In the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And what he was referring to, and it was honestly a genius move by Jesus because he knew the Sadducees wouldn't accept a ton of other stuff from the scriptures. And so he went back to Exodus, a part that they would would accept. And he's going all the way back to when Moses was shepherding sheep in the wilderness for about 40 years. And one day he's walking along and he sees a burning bush. and He's like, what? And he hears a voice calling from the bush, telling him to remove his sandals because he is on holy ground. And it is God himself appearing to Moses in this burning bush and he begins to speak to him and tells Moses, you are going to be a deliverer of my people. You will lead them out of Egypt. And, and Moses is like, okay, so when I go talk to these people, who should I tell them is sending me? And he, God says, I am that I am. Tell them I am has sent you. And this was a specific name that God had given to himself. That is that he exists, that he lives If anything exists, if anything lives, it is him, the I am. But in that, he says, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac and I am the God of Jacob. Which is strange because by that point, those men had been dead for hundreds of years. And so how can he say, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob when those guys are dead? And that's exactly Jesus's point. Because those Sadducees would have subscribed that we are children of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They would have honor and respect for those figures who went before them. And Jesus is saying, look, how can God say, I am the God of these men if they are dead? How can a living God, an eternally living God, be their God if they are dead? But they are not dead. In fact, they are alive because he is not the God of the dead, but the God of the dead of the living. One of the ways that we can rebel against the authority of God is in matters of truth. I want to ask you if this sounds familiar. Imagine maybe a conversation taking place and it may sound familiar to something that you've heard someone else do or maybe something that you have done in the past, but Say you have a certain opinion about a specific issue and you are really fiery, you are really passionate about that issue. And let's just say that in the midst of that issue, uh, when you, we'll just, we'll use it as, it's a Bible issue. There's something in the Bible and you're so passionate and you're so excited about it. You discard major sections of the scriptures and what they have to say including about this particular issue. And let's just say you're so passionate, every now and then you get into conversations with other people about this, and as a way to try to make that person look foolish and look like an idiot for having a position that is different from yours about that issue, you make up a ridiculous example. You use the most extreme example of how this issue plays out, and you put it in front of that person such that if they were to still hold to their position, it would seem completely absurd, ridiculous. It would seem like they were abandoning all intellect and reason. Have you ever heard arguments like that before? That's exactly what the Sadducees just did. This is a trick as old as time. This is exactly what we do when Jesus himself has said about the entirety of the Old Testament. He said, I have not come to abolish one single marking in the entire scriptures. So none of it gets tossed out. In fact, all of it stays right where it is. But he says, I have come to fulfill it. And later on in the Gospels of John and later on in the Gospels of Luke, he affirms the law, the prophets and the writings. He says the entirety of it is truth. It's God's and it's about me. And yet, what do we do when it comes to a particular issue about how we treat our money or about how we treat people or how about we, about how we treat sexuality or about how how we treat our children, or how we treat our parents, how we treat our jobs. What do we do? We play games with what Jesus said was true, and we toss out large sections of it, and then we turn to an extreme example to try to back up our stance. And you notice what Jesus does. He he uh, he acquiesces a little bit by. Teaching them from the law, but notice what he does. Twice, he says, You're wrong. He doesn't, what's what's an appropriate way to say this? He doesn't dance around the issue, he doesn't coddle these guys. He says, You're wrong. And in fact, these guys didn't believe in resurrection, they didn't believe in afterlife, they didn't believe in angels. And what did Jesus bring up in his reply? all three, regardless of whether or not they believed it, how did Jesus respond? He said, now Jesus did it in a sinless and loving way, I am certain, but he said, you're wrong. Here's the things that are true. And here it is from the scriptures. And that seems kind of offensive to us. But once again, this is not just about a matter of, just true, this is a matter of authority to God. Because once again, in the same way that our failure to sit under the authority of government or maybe our bosses or other things, it means that we lack a trust in the character of God who put those things in our place. At the same time, if we fail to submit to the authority of truth, we are demonstrating a lack of trust in the God who put it there. and lastly not just rejection due to error of politics or theology but also of affections verse 28 one of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognized that he had answered them well so this scribe comes up he's like i'm not getting into an argument with jesus and and i really believe that the question that he asks jesus is sincere i don't think he's playing games i think he's sincere he wants to know what commandment is the greatest of all. I mean, there's some 600, give or take, commands in the Old Testament. So I can imagine someone at some point, case in point, someone was like, okay, just, let's just clear all this away. What's the most important thing? What do I focus on? And Jesus says, hear, O Israel, The Lord our God is one Lord and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. That in this conversation about authority, all of a sudden Jesus brings up love. Love, not just love in general, but love for God, which means that if there's some indication that we lack a submission to God's authority, it means that there's something wrong with our personal worship. There's something wrong with our view of God's worthiness that we are not submitting in terms of our personal worship because Out of all of this issue of authority, what I think is happening here, what I believe is happening, is that God is getting after the heart of the matter, literally. That behind all of this, it's not an issue of external observance. It's not an issue of putting the right practices in place. In the end, this authority issue is about our love for God. This is first and foremost what is going on here. And it's really interesting that Jesus tacks on the second one. Because the guy comes up and says, what one commandment? And Jesus gives him two. And then Jesus says, there is no other commandment, singular, greater than these, plural. Which means that if this is an issue of the heart and that first and foremost it's a matter of love for God... Then secondarily, also, and inseparably, this is a matter of how you and I love other people. And so, let's go back to that matter of governing authorities. In the midst of a culture, in the midst of a society where people were being killed for their faith, how in the world could they then be a part Of this movement that says, let's pray for our king, let's honor our king. How could they do that? How is that even possible? The reason why is because of this because they loved God and they learned how to love others. And what did Jesus say just prior to this? The image thing? those made in his image, the capacity to love them. All this issue of authority is about love for God and love for other people. If you find yourself several months from now angry and hateful in your heart towards any political figure, I don't care who it is, the issue is not the politician. The issue is not the government. The issue is your heart. The issue, first and foremost, is your love for God. There's some kind of corruption happening that is keeping you in bitterness and keeping you in anger and keeping you in fear and keeping you from having the hopefulness that we see in the New Testament writings towards God's kingdom and the kingdoms that we encounter on this earth. It's not an issue of them. It's an issue of you and me. It begins with a love for God and also a love for other people, which means... When President-elect Trump comes into office one day and does something that you find entirely offensive and it makes you so angry, I'm going to encourage you to pray for him and pray for any of our nation's leaders at any point in time to pray for them because if you can pray for them, if you can want good for them, even if any of them do things that are horrible for our country or horrible, horrible for specific sets of people or display any kind of prejudice. Again, the Roman government was prejudiced against Christians and they still loved and prayed for and honored the king. This is the same type of call that is for us because ultimately is about not our relationship with them like that does matter, but ultimately it's about our relationship with God, the one who is the supreme authority in all things. There's not a moment in the in all the gospels. Well, that's, sorry, there are very few moments in all of the gospels where we see someone among the chief pri, uh, chief priests, the scribes, Pharisees, Rodians, all of these guys, where someone responds positively. There are a few, and this is one. Where it looks like it could go positively. He's not angry with Jesus. And in fact, look how he responds the scribe said to him right teacher you have truly stated that he is one and there is no one else besides him and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices and that isn't new to this moment with jesus that happens in first samuel 6 i believe as well as in hosea 6 where someone indicates that Love for God and obedience to God is more than any sacrifice or offering that you could give. And so the point here is is this guy gets it. What Jesus is after, this guy gets it. And he says, he answered intelligently. Like in his mind, he gets it. He understands what all of this is about. But there's a problem. As far as I can remember, every instance... In the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus has a positive encounter with someone, that person, you see them respond to Jesus and in some way follow him. But here, it's left open ended. And I believe that's a warning. That on the exterior, you could have everything figured out, you could have the show of many things you could have the external projection that you are sitting under the authority of government or sitting under the authority of scripture because this scribe did. But here it's left open-ended about what he did. Did he follow Jesus or did he not? And I would say it's open-ended because it's a warning because Jesus says, you are so close to the kingdom of God. But the problem with, not the problem, the truth about the kingdom of God and the problem for us is that there's no almost with the kingdom of God. The way Jesus described it, the way the entirety of the Bible describes it is when it comes to God's kingdom, you are either in or you are out. And the warning here, I believe, is that this scribe was standing on the precipice of the kingdom of God. And he had everything mentally locked in to write where Jesus was and write what Jesus write what Jesus expected from people. But by the end of the story, you have no confidence whether he left in the kingdom or outside of it. And the only thing we heard is that you're close. And I think that's a warning because we can be we can have it all figured out up here. But if this issue is really about our love for God then somewhere it has to go from here to here. It has to translate from your head into your heart. And I think that is exactly what is happening in this situation. That at some point you could externally have it all figured out, but in your heart, you're just not there. You do not love God the way that you were made to, the way that you were meant to. And that's a problem Because this guy, out of all of these interactions, he was the one that looked like he was right there. But we leave the story with all three of them wondering, will they ever get into the kingdom of God? And that shouldn't be. Because Jesus answered them. But we're questioning on all three of them. And I think what we need to realize is there's a fundamental problem with people and why we resist authority. It's Our hearts, our hearts are rebellious. Our hearts hate to be told what to do. Our hearts hate to be told that we're wrong. We hate it and we don't trust God with it. And if there's no hope or if we question the hope for this guy who was right there and Jesus says, you're not far, then what's the hope for us? And I believe that this is where it is especially sad. Someone like the the Sadducees cast out things like the prophets and the writings. Because in the prophets, what they would have read is from the book of Jeremiah. When Jeremiah says, on behalf of God, that I will make a new covenant, a new promise with my people. And one day I will remove the heart of stone and I will replace it with the heart of flesh. I will remove the heart that is stubborn and obstinate and opposed to God and opposed to his ways and I will replace it with a heart that is tender and a heart that is soft and a heart that is sensitive to what God wants to do. And we see these three examples, classic examples of how we resist God's authority, whether it's politically, theologically, or just in the matter of the affections and the devotion of our heart. And thank God that Jesus is standing there and he is the one who would do it on our behalf. It's no coincidence that throughout the New Testament, it talks about Jesus's submission to the father. That Jesus being the perfect image of God on our behalf over and over again, Jesus himself and other writers about him indicate that Jesus was in perfect submission to the authority of his father. And this had to be so because we failed to be in submission to the Father in every way. But Jesus would do it on our behalf. And as Philippians would say, his submission was perfect to the point where he would surrender his life on a cross to make payment for our sins. And praise God, he would rise again. And those who would repent of sin and put their trust in him would receive the promise of Isaiah, a new heart so that we can respond to God affectionately and we can respond to God theologically. We can respond to God in this world, whether it's government or whether it's the social sphere, whatever it may be, we can respond to God in a way that we honor his authority in every way. And one of the ways that we can do that, Christians, as I invite you now into a time of response one of the best ways that we get to do that each week is we get to remember the table. In just a few moments, we'll open the table and those of you who have trusted the blood of Christ on your behalf, the obedience of Christ to the authority of the Father on your behalf, come and participate and remember the body and blood of Jesus given on your behalf. Remembering one day that Jesus will return. He will set up the kingdom that will be perfect as we read in Isaiah from our scripture, uh, sorry, from our Advent time earlier that there will be a day when God will turn all swords into plowshares and nations will not wage war against each other. That day is coming in, G- in Jesus' return and we will enjoy this supper with him again. So come and participate. If you're not a Christian, we politely and respectfully ask you uh, to abstain from that and just consider what you have heard. We have placed prayers in your worship guide that you received on the way in for you to meditate and think on this, but settle this matter in your heart because we want you to participate in this supper with us one day. I, We invite you to respond by singing. We invite you to respond by standing silently in meditation, by kneeling at your spot in prayer. Or you can kneel at the side or the back or the front. You can pray and just give your heart to Jesus and We invite you, there's so many ways to respond. If you want to give generously, there's a box in the back back where you can do that. If you want to go seek reconciliation with a brother or sister that you've offended, you can do that, but I invite you to respond. And one of the things I love about the Hallows Church is when we gather together to pray before our worship gathering, we recognize that this time is not about us. This time is about the authority of Jesus And what a great joy to gather together under that authority. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you care. We thank you that you tell us the things that are difficult sometimes. The things that are hard. The things that that, that challenge us. The things that make us angry even. But I also thank you, God, that there's always a message of hope when we are reminded of how drastically we fall short of honoring your authority, that in so many ways we are, we are like the Herodians and the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes. And, and we thank you for the message of hope that even though we couldn't do it, Jesus did. And that Jesus is the one who perfectly obeyed and submitted to your authority. And thank you that in that he went to the cross and died for our sins. And thank you that we can be confident of forgiveness and we can be confident of a new heart and that now you enable us and empower us to do these things for which we were created to do. And so Lord, as we close this time of your word, I pray God that you would make us a people who are peculiar and unique and stand out in the way that we honor both God, but also the authority that you have put into place. And that you would use that as a testimony, just like our brothers and sisters were a testimony to their culture in the first century. Make us like that now. And do it for your glory, God, but also our joy in Jesus' name, amen.